1: When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
2: Free economics Radio is sponsored by Homes.com. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in depth information they need to find the right home. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know all in one place. As they say at homes.com, we've done your homework. Mary Roach is a writer, a nonfiction writer, who is a bit obsessed with death. But not so much the dying part of death as what comes afterwards. Her first book, Stiff, is about the secret life of cadavers. In her follow-up book, Spook, she goes looking for evidence of the afterlife. Of particular interest is the thing we call the soul. How real is it? What happens to it? When we die? And where is it located when we're alive? Now, big thinkers have been thinking about the soul forever. And Mary Roach says there have been some interesting ideas.
3: Oh, yeah. No, well, Aristotle had this notion of pneuma, like as in pneumatic wind, uh, and and it was this. Spirit, uh, this 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 thing that brought life where life didn't exist, and it started out in um, the sperm. Uh, and so, when the, the the sperm would sort of, on arrival inside the woman's body, get busy, kind of building something where there was nothing, and they would sort of they breathe life into it with this pneuma, this spirit.
2: Now, if you don't like the Aristotelian view of the soul, Roach has some more you can think about
3: the ancient Egyptians thought that the heart was the center of the spirit, that the soul resided there. The Babylonians identified the liver, and I think the stomach was a secondary um, seat of the soul. And the liver is a a, a beautiful, very sleek, kind of streamlined, really boss-looking organ. I could imagine looking at that and thinking, yeah, that could be it.
2: Now, science and anatomy moved forward, of course, and we learned a great deal about these organs, but on matters of the soul, the answers haven't been so forthcoming. Fast forward now to the 17th century.
3: Very quickly, it became obvious when you mess around with the brain, you change people's personality, people's spirit, things kind of shift. So there was a a sense pretty early on that this is where we should look in the brain. And Descartes, Rene Descartes, did a fair amount of this work using livestock heads. Descartes had this apparently this room sort of with heads of of cows and livestock in different stages of disassembly, and he would sometimes, when dinner guests were over, he would open the door to this room and say, These are my books. (laughs) There would be these carcasses and heads, and you kind of had to think that after a while people didn't, want to go over to Renee's house for dinner very much.
1: From WNYC and APM, American Public Media, this is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner.
2: Today, we're talking about the human soul, what it is, what it represents, and this being Freakonomics, we'd like to ask a different kind of question about the soul. Is the soul, to use a very utilitarian word, transferable? Let me tell you about something strange that happened not long ago on our Freakonomics blog. There was a post about skepticism. And in the comments section of that post, a reader named Caleb B. posed a question, something that had been puzzling him for years. Uh, My question was, why are people who
4: profess not to have a soul hesitant to sell it? And uh, it's kind of come about because uh, throughout my interactions with people, you know, growing up, I would run into somebody who would profess to be an atheist. And naturally, I'd find the conversation interesting. I would ask the question, well, if you don't have a soul,
2: can I buy it from you? Caleb is 30 years old, lives in Oklahoma City. You might think from his question that he's not a Christian. That's what I thought, at least. But it turns out that he is. Now, we took Caleb's blog comment and turned it into a blog post all of its own. Do you have it in front of you, the actual blog post, or no? Uh, I do not. OK. So let me just read a little bit of it. Sure. Um, this is from Caleb on the Free Economics blog. I've been trying for the better part of 10 years to buy a soul. I've offered a dollar amount between $10 and $50 for someone to sign a sheet of paper that says that I own their soul. Despite multiple debates with confessed atheists, no one has signed that contract. Will any... For economics reader, take me up on this. I'm willing to spend $50 on souls. OK, so did the offers come pouring in or no? Uh, well, the first to respond
4: to me was Bruce. And uh, he was very excited and adamant. And he said, I'd be interested in selling you my soul if you're willing. And so we struck up a conversation and uh, um, agreed to a contract.
5: One of the first things uh, when I realized that there was a guy out there who would produce real money, I mean, my, my first thoughts are, wow, if there's a guy who'll pay 50 I wonder if there's somebody who'll pay 51 You know, and uh, I even looked briefly into, I, I noticed that eBay has a policy against selling intangible items. You can't, uh, you can't go auction your soul off on eBay.
2: That's Bruce Hamilton. He's the guy who sold his soul to Caleb for $50. Bruce is in his 50s. He's a tech entrepreneur in Seattle. Unlike Caleb, he is an atheist. He does not believe the soul exists. So, for Bruce, getting paid $50 for something that doesn't exist was not a hard decision. He did try to understand Caleb's reasoning before he agreed to sell his soul.
5: Uh, Yeah, I was real interested in his motivations because I wanted to make sure that he was happy doing this or that I wasn't doing it with somebody that... uh, Shouldn't be making such a deal, but uh, he was—he was a perfectly competent guy, and he knew what he was doing. And uh, we did exchange a little bit of a talk about uh, theology or belief, but not so much. I think there was some feeling out about trust. You know, he was about to send me fifty bucks, and he didn't know who I was, and I guess uh, I was about to get a check that might bounce. But uh, in general, <laughs> uh, I was—I was happy to do it if I could convince myself that he was, and I did convince myself that he was, and. For me, in a in a sort of strict Steve Levitt kind of way, I would have done it for a dollar or <laughs> a penny. You know, I, was, I was trading something that had no value for something that had some value, right. even if fifty bucks doesn't mean that much. <laughs> one might assume that a guy who offers to buy a soul in this situation,
2: somebody who's posting on a blog asking questions of a skeptic, one might assume that that kind of person would be a skeptic or a non-believer, an atheist himself, and that the point was to show that see, it means nothing. But were you surprised to find out that that's not who he was? That he actually is a you know believer who thinks that the soul is real and has value?
5: Yeah, I was shocked. Uh, I, I assumed he would be an atheist. Uh, it, it just struck me as a very irreverent thing to do in general. And uh, if he really does believe that the soul is is an integral part of a person and that he just took mine, well, this that wasn't a very nice thing to do. So it uh, I, I saw a lot of incongruity there, and I uh, was quite surprised. That was Caleb's point, really.
2: All those people he talked to who said they were atheists wouldn't sell him their souls, which proved to him that they thought the soul did have value. But then, finally, along came Bruce. Let me ask you this, Bruce. When's the last time you read Faust?
5: I I don't know much about Faust. I only know enough to know about what it is. I I couldn't say that I know a lot about Faust. So
2: I'm guessing you do know that in exchange for his soul, for selling his soul to the devil via Mephistopheles, that Faust received unlimited knowledge and worldly pleasures. And you, Bruce Hamilton, you only got 50 bucks. Do you think you got shortchanged here?
5: Well, let's just say that 50 was more than uh, anybody else was offering. So if, if the open market value was zero and I got 50, I think I scored.
2: So Caleb mailed Bruce a check for $50 and a contract to sign, turning over possession of his soul. That's right, soul possession. But what's Caleb supposed to do with Bruce's soul?
4: Can I ever take possession of that soul? I'm not going to put it in a mason jar. I'm not going to. Own it in any kind of particular sense. The value to me was just seeing the contract signed by somebody.
2: You do believe in God, yes? Yes. And what would you make of a God who lets you, a believer, buy the soul of a fellow human being? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh,
4: My wife asked the question, uh, well, or do you now have responsibility for Bruce's soul uh, if Bruce goes out and you know does a bunch of horrible and, and despicable acts are you going to be held responsible in the afterlife and uh, my response is really I, I, I don't know
2: I don't know coming up if you can
0: buy a soul what else can you buy If you've wronged someone, or if you're on the outs with someone, whether an estranged lover or a a business partner, and you can't quite bring yourself to apologize personally, you can apparently hire the company to do it for you. The motto of the company is We say sorry for you. For a fee.
2: Go there with Marriott Bonboy. Free Economics Radio is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That hurtful comment your friend made, that frustrating thing your mom does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Therapy is a safe space to share whatever is weighing you down so you can get some relief and find a solution. BetterHelp offers professional, affordable online therapy on a flexible schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Freakonomics today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, hel slash Freakonomics.
1: From WNYC and APM, American Public Media, this is Freakonomics Radio. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner.
2: So, a guy named Bruce in Seattle sold his soul to a guy named Caleb in Oklahoma for fifty bucks. It makes you wonder about the line between what can be bought and sold and what can't or shouldn't. Now. This line is a fluid line. It shifts from person to person, and it especially shifts over time. Markets evolve for all kinds of reasons, from the political to the moral. Michael Sandel is a political philosopher at Harvard. You may know him from a course he teaches called Justice, which was so popular that it got turned into a public television show. Sandel's latest book is called What Money
0: Can't Buy – the moral limits of markets. I ran across an example of a company in Tianjin, China, uh, called the Tianjin Apology Company. <laughs> if you've if you've wronged someone, or if you're on the outs with someone, if you mm-hmm. uh, whether an estranged lover or a, a business partner, and you can't quite bring yourself to apologize personally. You can apparently hire the company to do it for you. The motto of the company is we say sorry for you for a <laughs> now, fee. Now, how well can that possibly work? Let's
2: say you've deeply wronged me, Professor Sandel. Let's say that you've uh, right. you know kicked my puppy on the street and, and, right. and I get a – a phone call or an email or a telegram from this very lovely apology company saying, Professor Michael Sandel wishes to express his regret at kicking your right. puppy.
0: Is that supposed right. to work? How, how is that supposed to work? Well, it's an interesting question whether it works. I suppose a defender of this could say, look, have you ever sent a Hallmark card? Yeah, good point. So um, this is a scenario on to run
2: past you, Professor Sandel. We talked to a fellow – who um, whose name is Caleb, who who wanted to buy someone's soul. He offered $50. And he finally found a seller. So they made the transaction. Paperwork was exchanged. Cash was exchanged. Caleb bought Bruce's soul. I am very curious to know what you, Professor Sandel, think of this kind of transaction.
0: Well, it, it's, it strikes me. The first thing that strikes me about it is that it's, it's a very old idea. It's not, it's, it's not new. Think of the uh, indulgences of the medieval period. And the, it was, after all, the sale of indulgences, which is pretty close. Is there a difference between selling your soul and buying salvation? If you can buy a person's soul – it would it, that's pretty closely akin to buying salvation, which was – you remember that was the practice that was carried out uh, in, in the Catholic Church at the time that Martin Luther rose up against indulgences, against the buying and selling of salvation. Indeed. And when we look back
2: on that period in history now and Martin Luther nailing to the door of the church, we, we think, oh, thank goodness, this is the kind of transaction that we no longer – are surrounded by, and yet here's a guy hundreds of years later who, uh, on a scale of one at least, is trying to reenact it. Uh, It's different. This is a little bit different. There was not the sale of an indulgence to save the soul in the same way here. This was one person transferring his to another person. I'm curious. Do you have personally, morally, ethically, through the lens through which
0: you see the world, have a problem with this transaction? Well, there are two possible problems uh, and only one of them is moral. Um, I suspect that most people would regard this commercial exchange either as absurd or as abhorrent, but not both. Uh, People will view it as absurd if they think there is no such thing as a soul or if they think that the soul is the kind of thing that can't conceivably be bought and sold in the first place. If you believe that about the soul then you'll regard this as absurd but not as abhorrent. It would just be based on a mistake. If however you believe that there is such a thing as a soul and if you believe that bartering in the soul, buying and selling it, it's a kind of violation of a proper regard for the soul, then you will regard this not as absurd but as abhorrent, as transgressive, as as maybe even as a kind of sin. Which brings out part of the general argument that I would make about markets. In order to decide where markets belong and where they don't, we have to sort out the hard underlying questions about the nature of the goods that money would buy, in this case. You have to work out your theology. You have to decide what is the status of the soul and is there any transgression in trying to buy or sell it. That's why I say it. it's either absurd or abhorrent depending on your underlying view about the status of the soul. You see what I mean? I do, and that's a very valuable
2: distinction. It makes me curious, what about you personally – um, if I offered to buy your soul for fifty dollars,
0: what would you say? Well, first I would say, "Why do you want it? What do you want to do with it?" I would let's, I would probe to, to hear what you had in mind.
2: Let's say that I and, feel that uh, let's say that I feel that you are not exercising it properly. That that you are not taking seriously enough for my taste and my moral code. Uh, the responsibility of this the spiritual entity known as a soul, and I therefore am willing to um, pay dollars uh, in order to better curate that soul because I do believe in the sanctity of a soul. And rather than see you not tend yours properly, I am willing to to pay the price to take over that responsibility. Let's say that were
0: my answer. Well, the more seriously I took your answer, the more genuine I took it to be and the more plausible I thought it might be as a way of thinking about my soul, my destiny, um, the more offended I would be. Mm -hmm. The less seriously I took it, Mm -hmm. the more I thought listening to you that you were either a, a crank or a prankster yeah. Um, the less offended I would be, which is to say it, it, it would be less a matter of, of offent- taking offense and abhorring this than regarding it as absurd yeah. and a matter of indifference. But you know it's connected. This question, how we would regard such an offer, uh, is not unrelated to the debate that we've heard about in connection with the Romney campaign. Some say that uh, Governor Romney should renounce a practice of the Mormon Church of retrospective conversions. Ellie Wiesel, you may have uh, noticed, uh, came out urging Romney to renounce the practice of the Mormon Church of retrospectively converting some Jews, including Anne Frank. Now, the church itself apparently Said the person who did that retrospective posthumous conversion of Anne Frank was uh, did so in an unauthorized way. But the question is, if there is a church that uh, that carries out posthumous conversions, converts, let's say, Anne Frank um, for the sake of her soul. Here's how it's analogous to your case of. You want to buy my soul, the better to look after it. Here's a church. There's no money uh, trading hands. Uh, Is this offensive or if you don't believe it's efficacious, if you you don't believe there's anything in it, can you really take offense or is it simply something that's absurd? So how people react to this retrospective posthumous conversion controversy, I think – would pretty closely track your question about whether the soul is the kind of thing that can or should be bought and sold. It depends on your underlying view of the status of the soul or of conversion in that case or of salvation in the case of indulgences and and Martin Luther.
2: Now, who am I to challenge the model you just laid out? Because I think it's right on in a lot of ways. But if you divide it into abhorrent and absurd – I'm not sure that it can't be both because I'll tell you my position, my personal position on uh, yeah. the Mormon um, posthumous baptisms. Which have been going on for years and years and have included you know, not just the notable names that you, that you mentioned, but you know many, many, many um, yes. hundreds of thousands, probably millions, but, um, a lot of Holocaust victims, Holocaust survivors, not just Jews, but um, I know when I was doing uh, genealogy research into my Jewish family from three or four generations ago, I came across this issue of the Mormon church having Posthumously baptized uh, relatives uh, hmm. who had died in the Holocaust. And and I found it. Relatives both, of yours? Yes. Uh huh. Yep. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. And I found it, I have to say, both abhorrent and absurd. Um, mm-hmm. So even though I posed to you the question about. This one fellow who sold a soul for 50 bucks, and it does sound kind of like a a joke or a crank, as you put it. But then when we get into something where it's systematic, where there's a church in this Mm. case that baptizes non-members, posthumously baptizes them, and admits them into its church, I have to say, I quickly go beyond the moral, and I go to the legal, and I think uh, if— Uh, one fellow named Caleb in Oklahoma City is willing and able to buy the soul of another fellow named Bruce in Seattle for $50. Should, let's say, the Mormon church be required to pay, let's say, we've just set a precedent rate of $50, $50 per soul per posthumous baptism? Is there an argument to be made here for reparation pay based on the inherent value of a
0: soul? Well... Uh, there's a risk in that you you called it reparation pay, Stephen, but yes, suppose the the people doing the retrospective baptisms considered that it was so important that they were willing to raise the funds ah. necessary to pay fifty dollars mm. per conversion. Mm. what they would be doing would be uh converting the reparation uh or the penalty or the sanction, into a cost of carrying out what to them is a very important uh, religious right. And that connects to, to the distinction I make between a fine, which is like a reparation, and a fee, which is a cost of doing business without any moral opprobrium or stigma attached to it. A market economy is a tool, it's a valuable tool, it's an instrument for achieving economic uh, wealth, affluence, and prosperity. It's a tool that we use and that we put to our purposes. But as markets and market thinking come to inform all aspects of life, as everything becomes available for sale, we become a market society, which is a way of thinking and being, an unreflective way of thinking and being, that just assumes that All the good things in life can, in principle, be up for sale. And that, I think, diminishes a great many moral and civic goods that markets and market relations don't honor and that money can't or shouldn't buy.
2: I wondered what Caleb, the guy who bought Bruce's soul for $50, would think about the moral limits of the market. It struck me that once you start selling souls, it's a slippery slope. Let me ask you this. Um, just between you and me now, if I offered you 60 bucks for Bruce's soul, would you resell it to me? I probably would. Really? Yeah. Certainly, tell me again exactly what you do for a living. I am a bond analyst for mm-hmm. a bank. So you're familiar with markets, how they work, when they when they work and when they don't work, when they fail sometime. Generally, yes. Um, do you um, have you considered uh, establishing some kind of a soul market? <laughs> it might be a uh, if I had the technical
4: guru, it might be something indeed that I could do. Yes.
2: And what about Bruce, the seller? On the central matter here, the existence of a soul, Bruce and Caleb disagree. Caleb believes in the soul and thinks it's worth something. Bruce doesn't believe in the soul and therefore was happy to sell at any price. But as to how the market should work, even for souls? Well, on this point, the two men are in complete agreement. I asked Bruce if he cared that Caleb would resell his soul. Uh,
5: no, it's, he's completely free to do with it whatever he wants. If, if he finds a way to make $1,000 with it, uh, I might be disappointed that I, I wasn't smart enough to figure out how to make $1,000 with it before he did. But uh, if he's clever enough to do that, <laughs> uh, I'm all for it. That's fine with me. And
2: what if someone else comes to you that doesn't know you've sold your soul to this guy named Caleb in Oklahoma and offers to buy your soul? Um, what do you do next time?
5: Well, you know, the soul is such a, a nebulous concept. And in general, these these spiritual things are, are so amorphous that you can just make up anything you want about them and just decree them to be true. So uh, I might just stay, say that my soul is kind of like a starfish leg. You know, you chop it off, but it grows back. So <laughs> there it is. Look, I have it again. It's for sale. So I guess to any of your audience, you know, if anybody else wants to come along and give me 50 bucks, I'm I'm here to take it all day long. And maybe this is a... Nice way to make a living if I could just do it 20 times a day.
1: Freakonomics Economics Radio is produced by WNYC, APM American Public Media and Dubner Productions. Our staff includes Susie Lichtenberg, Katherine Wells, Barry Lamb and Chris Bannon. David Herman is our engineer, Colin Campbell is our executive producer. If you want more Freakonomics Radio, subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes and go to Freakonomics.com where you'll find lots of radio, a blog, the books, and more.
2: Pilots know that weather factors, like storms, turbulence, and icing, can turn routine flight into a challenge. But what if you had satellite-delivered weather data giving you the full picture of what's around you? With SiriusXM Aviation, get coast-to-coast high-resolution weather info, all without altitude limitations or line-of-sight restrictions. Fly confidently, knowing you have the best information available to make
0: decisions in flight. Visit SiriusXM.com aviation to learn more.